Hey, it's Andy from Talking to Teens. It would mean the world to us if you could leave us a five-star review. Reviews on Apple and Spotify help other parents find the show, and that helps us keep the lights on. Thanks for being a listener, and here's the show. You're listening to Talking to Teens, where we speak with leading experts from a variety of disciplines about the art and science of parenting teenagers. I'm your host, Andy Earle. We're here today with Jay Brown. Jay is a yoga teacher, but what's really cool about Jay is all the stuff he does online. He has this huge presence. He broadcasts his yoga classes to the world. He has a podcast, a blog. So Jay, thanks for being with us. How you doing? I'm doing good, man. How are you? Excellent. Really excited. Cool. It's good to be here. So... It's really hard to be non-judgmental with your teenager because they're messing up, right? You can just see it so clearly, but of course they can't a lot of times. There's this aspect of non-judgment that you just can't fake. As much as you try to pretend like you're being open, if there's like a part of you that is judging what this person is telling you, they pick up on that. They notice it. And I wonder how it might apply to a parent and teenager kind of relationship. Well, first of all, let me say I have a seven-year-old daughter and a two-and-a-half-year-old daughter. So your question speaks to me, especially since my seven-year-old already seems to exhibit the behavior of a teenager. It's freaky, you know? I looked at your website talking to teens and some of those things that you point to that teens do. She already does that stuff to me. So in terms of non-judgment, I feel like that is like a very primary yogic principle. But one of the things that I've discovered about most principles like that in yoga is that trying to be non-judgmental doesn't work. Where the non-judgmentness comes from is like my internal state. That's one of the few things I can kind of have some say over. Like I can't have say over what my daughter is going to say or do, (laughs) but I can have some say over what state I'm in. Like if I'm in a frazzled state, and I'm in a bad mood, that colors my perception of the moment and leads me to be judgmental or treat her in a way that's less than helpful or whatever. Yeah. Mm. I'm fascinated by this and what you're getting at is so true. I think there's a lot of studies showing this same sort of thing, like when we're tired, when we're emotional, when we're, as you say, kind of not fully centered. Our more rational part of our brain has less control in those instances. And I mean, I think it's an evolutionary Mm -hmm. adaptation, right? I actually was hearing someone talk specifically about our brains and how they function certain ways when we're hungry and when we're not hungry. Judges are more likely to give probation right after they've eaten as opposed to right before lunch. And it was drastic. It was like a 90% difference or something. (laughs) Someone's judgment you could see from the numbers was determined by how hungry they were. And when you ask the judges, they would say it has no effect. (laughs) They wouldn't wouldn't acknowledge that they were making drastically different decisions just because whether or not they were hungry. How dare you even suggest such a thing? Exactly. How would you call into question my impartiality, my (laughs) non-judgmentalness? Although actually judges are supposed to judge. (laughs) That's their job, right? That's kind of in the job description there a little bit, huh? Hmm. 
Okay, so this brings up like two things I think here, right? The first is the preparation. When you know in advance that you're going to be maybe having a difficult talk or there's something that you need to talk about that's going to be important, what's the preparation to put yourself in a space where you can be more open, non-judgmental? And the second is, well, it's inevitable, right? Like at some point, it's going to happen where something comes up and you didn't have time for that preparation and you're not in that place of being completely ready for it. So how do you deal with that? I mean... First, you have to actually make the time. <laughs> you have to, you got to like schedule it, you know? I mean, my preparation to have that time with her, to be able to listen to her, is to be able to set aside all of my pressing matters, you know? That's like a really difficult thing to do. Those pressing matters are really important. That's like my identity and my survival, <laughs> paying my bills and all of that, but in a way to be there for her, on some level, I have to be able to set that aside and, and let it be about her. Sure. And, and what that takes, getting ready for that, one, making the time, two, breathing and moving exercises. If I was in an out of sorts kind of place and I need to sit down and have a talk with my daughter, I might go take 10 minutes by myself first to do a little breathing and moving, get myself into a good place, and then go have the talk with her, as opposed to just, oh, oh, it's time to have the talk with my daughter, and uh, I jump in there, and I'm not really there. She senses it. You said it earlier. She can tell, man. My daughter has the ability to see right through me <laughs> <laughs> in ways that other adults do not. You know, yeah. She has the ability to push buttons in me but fortunately, I've worked hard to have a little space inside my head where I get to make a choice. I get to choose how I'm going to behave in that moment rather than reacting. It does boil down to my ability to be present and able to choose how I wish to respond <laughs> rather than reacting and having to apologize later or something. <laughs> I had this class in college and my professor would start every class period off with a short breathing exercise you know, and everyone would kind of close their eyes take a few deep breaths and man it was really powerful you could see the change in everybody's demeanor just by taking that short breathing exercise so then you were talking about oh taking 10 minutes to myself before trying to have a conversation like this i wonder if you could also do it together. Like, hey, we're gonna sit down, we're gonna have some time, but first, humor me here and let's do a little kind of thing or whatever, right? I think that's a excellent idea. And in most cases, there's really simple things that you could do together that would be fun. Yeah. And also do what you're saying. Get both people into a mode of communicating that's really fruitful. I will just, as an aside, joke that it's a little bit different with me because I'm a yoga teacher. <laughs> yeah. My daughter definitely rebels. Like, if I try to be the teacher, it's like, forget about it. So I think we would do yoga practice, but I would let her tell me what to do rather than me tell her what to do. That's kind of the new dialogue among yoga teachers is letting other people have voices in the room. So that's what we're talking about, letting our kids have their own voices in the room. Although I have to also say, like, a seven-year-old is real different than a teen. <laughs> 
when they get older, they might not be so down. <laughs> I don't know. I have yet to find out, but. So you mentioned there are some fun things that you could do that would have that effect. What would some of those things be? Well, the one thing that I teach as a primary technique, I've actually taught some teens this, and I sort of wish someone had taught it to me earlier. It's a very specific breathing. They sometimes call it ocean breathing. And what it involves is you breathe through your nose and you regulate your breath, creating this sound. It's like a hissing H. It sounds like the ocean. I'm going to do it, and you could probably hear it in this mic. And that regulation, the bringing of your attention to your breath and the elongating of it with the sound, it's a tangible thing that you can do. And it tends to have like a sympathetic response on someone's nerves. And you can just sit in a chair and do it. Or it's often nice to put simple things, like simple movements. So you could just lift your arms up on the inhale and arms down on the exhale. You could do it in a chair. Uh... Super, super simple. Or if you were into it and you went to yoga classes, you come up with a short five-minute father-daughter yoga routine. <laughs> you were talking about how you've kind of built a space into your mind where you have the choice that allows you to choose. Mm -hmm. It's funny because it sounds almost identical to stuff that they teach in cognitive behavioral therapy. I've heard that. Right? And so what you're doing is a metacognitive technique that psychologists would teach their clients. There's kind of multiple steps, right? But the first step there is that you have to notice that you're having this reaction, right? Mm -hmm. I have to pick up on that. And then exactly like you said, I have to not act on my immediate natural reaction, but I then have to create that space where I can kind of step back from it a little bit and see that I'm having that reaction, but choose not to act in that way. And I mean, to me, that's one of the big ideas of yoga and of meditation in general, kind of being able to step back a little bit, notice that you're having this response, but then choosing to do something different. Mm -hmm. I think that it's a very specific teaching in every class I give. Its most clear form is in the practice of tree pose. I don't know if you know that pose. Tree pose is simply when you stand on one leg. It's like an icon pose. Standing on one leg without falling over equals you being a more balanced person. But it's a misguided notion because I know lots of people who can stand on one leg without falling over who are a complete wreck and they're not balanced at all. And then I know all kinds of people who can't stand on one leg and they're falling over and they're living wonderfully balanced, calm lives. So the physicality isn't the indicator, but the indicator for me is what happens in the moment when you fall over and how much say do you have in that moment? So I have this thing where I ask everyone to do me a favor. When they fall over, they will smile or chuckle about that. But the idea is to be able to assert something in that moment because the immediate reaction to falling over is this, oh, this frustration or this failure or something. It starts to create an idea in someone's mind about it. And I get all kinds of emails now. People tell me about all these horrible situations in their lives where they say, I got through because I did my tree pose, which just meant 
that they were able to not be in a state of reacting to it, but they were able to have that little bit of space where they get to choose how they're going to respond. And uh, it's an incredibly powerful thing, actually. It's funny because I think that that's exactly what we've been talking about this whole time, but you're turning it to self-judgment. There's this way in which we judge other people, but also I think what you're pointing out here is that, hey, I fell over, I must not be a balanced person. It's this snap judgment that we sometimes make about ourselves. Mm-hmm. That's probably a better answer to your other question about uh, non-judgment. Self-judgment starts there maybe. In order for me to be non-judging of somebody else, I'm gonna have to be non-judging of me. Right, and then what you're describing is kind of a technique to start achieving that. And this is in a specific instance, but I mean, I think we judge ourselves constantly in so many ways from looking in the mirror to judging ourselves as being lazy or not motivated or not talented or not good enough in some way. We compare ourselves to other people so often. Maybe a good practice, I mean, for anybody, but especially for parents, is trying to identify a few of those, maybe a few with yourself and a few with your spouse and a few with your kid that are like on a more consistent basis. What are the judgments that I seem to be making about myself, about my daughter, about my son? And writing down a few of those and then starting to just notice. And then like you're saying, not just noticing, but figuring out what do I replace that with? And it might even be as simple as, a smile. Mm-hmm. That's what I was saying. Like the reason why I ask people to fake it sometimes, even if they don't feel it. And I acknowledge if you're in a bad mood and I'm asking you to smile and you don't want to, that's totally annoying. I'm very sorry about that. I don't want to be annoying. But the idea is if, if you don't have a new thing to go to, like a new pattern, it's kind of impossible to change an old pattern. So if you have a new thing that you're going to, even when it doesn't even feel natural yet, like that expression, fake it till you make it, which I don't always subscribe to. There's lots of instances where I don't think that's true. But in some instances, <laughs> it can be true and helpful that that there needs to be a new thing that you're going to even before you're totally familiar with it. Having that new thing to go to means another choice. There's another choice that is available to you, another possibility And sometimes I like to think of that, and that's something I learned from a friend of mine, Amy Matthews, who's a really special teacher, that it's about opening up fuller ranges of possibilities as to what you could do or what you could say or how you are, you know? That is so cool. A lot of kind of what I teach parents is that, like, here's a few different ways you could respond to this, or here's a few different ways that you could start talking about a difficult topic or whatever it is. I don't want it to feel like it's a strategy or a technique that you're using, right? I mean, it is to a certain extent, but I think a lot of times we get locked into just doing things one way. There's a lot of studies on this. Once we have a strategy that seems to be working for us or that we've gotten away with in the past and it's been okay, we just tend to keep using that same strategy over and over again. Having ideas or options that make it feel possible (laughs) is really important and i i'm with you on trying to stay away from it being thought of as like a a strategy and then you accomplish results it has to be a process (laughs) like an ongoing evolving process keep thinking about 
the difference between my seven-year-old and what it's going to be like in 10 years or something from now. And I, I already kind of have a sense with her, and it, I don't know this from experience because I haven't been a parent to a teen yet, but I feel like when I can catch her involved in things that she really cares about or is passionate about is where she's the most open and like available to me. So I imagine that as she gets older and she develops her own interests, whatever those are, which I hope to encourage her to do, that if I could find a way to have a thing that we could both be into together, <laughs> I don't know what it is. Like for some people it's a golf or I don't know, whatever it is. I think of golf because there's so much time on the golf course for talking. <laughs> I somewhere in the back of my mind hope to try to see if I could spark an interest in that for her. <laughs> but my idea is that it'd be something that'd be really fun for me. I enjoy it genuinely. And if she enjoyed it genuinely too, and we could share in that, then that common shared thing that we both enjoy individually and together, I think makes conditions for this kind of communication that we're talking about. It's funny that you say that, but actually there's a lot of science behind that. There's something about having, like you say, an experience together and a couple aspects of golf. One a lot of studies showing that when we get out into nature together, it tends to kind of break down barriers. But the other thing is there's like a shared goal in golf. And there's something where when we do something with somebody where we feel like we're on the same team, kind of working towards a similar goal, it facilitates mm. more open communication. Mm, that makes a lot of sense to me. And golf's such a process because you like never arrive at it. <laughs> <laughs> But the funny part about that too is I played a fair amount of golf before I had kids and then I basically haven't been able to play. I can't justify it's too much time and money, you know, but at some point I hope if I could get her, that's going to be my grand coup is if I get her into it. But I like what you say too. It doesn't have to be golf. I do think outside is also part of it. Realizing my own screen addictions, the new technologies is something I talk a lot about these days because it's an area in myself where I am aware and then I'm still not good about it sometimes. I just think if it's that addictive to me, our kids don't stand a chance. Billions of dollars have gone into making these phones completely addictive so we'll spend more time on them. That's a fact. That's a fact. You know, <laughs> I don't know. So to me, getting outside without screens has something to do with that in the current state of affairs, you know? As another idea is to anybody listening, I had a neighbor who was a drum teacher, music teacher, and I had her have drum lessons and she got really into it. So she's been drumming and I'm a bass player. So we've had two actual jams and it's the, it was so good. It was so good. But it's what you said, because there's a common thing that we're both working towards. You know, that could be a jam or it could be having a happy life together. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But especially with music, because it's like we're trying to stay in sync, you know, we're trying to be on the yeah. same beat and we're getting softer and then we're getting louder and we're creating something together. There's something about and, and I know it's not easy to find, but yeah, an activity that is collaborative like that or that there's some kind of a shared goal mm. that you can be working on together is powerful. Mm. 
To wrap this up here a little bit, I know you have a fabulous blog and a podcast. The best place to find all of my stuff is at jbrownyoga.com. There I have the blog I mentioned, and then I have my podcast, and then I also have video offerings. In fact, there's a free seven-minute practice that you can go on there and do and try out. All of that can be found at jbrownyoga.com. We'll have some links to that on the page where this appears so you can check it out. Thanks for talking to us today. This has been informational, fun, and uh, I hope it provides some value to some people. Me too. It's been a real pleasure, man. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Talking to Teens podcast. If you have any questions or just want to connect, you can always reach me by email, andy at talkingtoteens.com. We'll see you next time. Thank you.